Welcome to Sound Practice, the business podcast for physicians and healthcare leaders, hosted by Mike Sakopoulos and produced by the American Association for Physician Leadership. Each year, 40,000 Americans die from breast cancer. Today, we will be talking with Dr. Laura Esserman about her large-scale research on mammograms. Dr. Esserman and her colleagues are determining whether the one-size-all approach to mammograms is best or whether a more patient-specific approach might yield better results. We will discuss how you can become involved in this research. This is an important topic you should not miss. Let's begin. Laura Esserman is Professor of Surgery and Radiology at the University of California, San Francisco. And she is the director of the UCSF Breast Care Clinic. Dr. Esserman led the creation of the University of California's Athena Breast Health Network. Dr. Esserman, welcome to Sound Practice. Thanks so much for having me. It is my pleasure. What is the wisdom study? So the wisdom study is really about a paradigm shift in the way we think about screening. Uh, importantly, we've had so much, um, there's been so many advances in our understanding of breast cancer. Breast cancer is not one disease. Um, and we don't treat all breast cancers the same. And I think it's high time we rethought the paradigm for screening and prevention to really acknowledge the fact that breast cancer is not one disease. And as well, our understanding of breast cancer risk has changed. So the opportunity here is to say, how do we do our best effort in risk assessment? And based on that risk assessment, identify strategies for screening and prevention that are appropriate for a given person's risk and for what they might be at risk for. So the wisdom study is an opportunity to take our one size fits all, screen everybody starting at 40 and compare it to a personalized risk assessment and screening and prevention strategy and see whether in fact, it's just as safe, it's preferred by women, it's less morbid and allows us to advance um, the acceptance of preventive interventions. And at the end of the day, can generate healthcare value. Sounds like many laudable goals there. How do you yes. recruit women to participate in the study? So um, we, we do it in many ways. And uh, I, you know, I'm, I really appreciate the opportunity to talk to the you know, physician leaders who might be listening into this podcast, because one of the things that we really need to do is we need to get the physician community behind these kinds of concepts and say, look, if we want to test new paradigms and we want to advance the field and we want to do it in real time, we need to participate in studies that can help us generate the evidence to enable these kinds of changes. So we, um, we have a number of sites across the country, our Athena Health Network, which is the five University of California campuses, plus Sanford Health in the Midwest. Plus now we have a number of uh, new sites, um, University of Chicago, University of Alabama, um, LSU, um, uh, uh, Vital MD in, in, in Florida, um, uh, Minnesota, we have a number of sites that are also have uh, uh, joined us to 
help us recruit and especially to make sure that our recruitment um, reflects the diversity of the country. But we, so we can invite people through our networks. Uh, we are, uh, it's, it's open to anybody in the country, anyone who hears about it, any physician can recommend it. Uh, any person who's in the trial or knows about it can recommend it. So anybody who has not had a diagnosis of breast cancer or in situ disease can join if they're 40 to 75. <clears throat> they just go to wisdomstudy.org. It's all electronic. You don't have to go to any particular site. It's patient friendly. It's not, it's in Spanish and in English. Um, it is uh, a really pretty straightforward process. The one thing we ask of people as that we, it's critical for us to get information at the beginning and every year. We need an update every year. So it's a pragmatic trial, right? We're trying to learn, uh, you know, about how our recommendations for screening, were they accepted? Did they use them? Did people wind up having to be recalled for a biopsy? Do they develop a cancer? These are the things that we need to know in order to run the trial. Excellent. So. You mentioned diversity, and I understand that the Wisdom Study makes an effort to enroll a population of women that mirrors the diversity of women in the United States. What are the, the metrics for diversity? For example, is, is education, level of education considered a metric for diversity? So it's a really good question. So when we think about diversity, there's, we can think about this in several ways. Um, so several, so if you can think about it, you can think about it about race and ethnicity. Um, so let's let's address each one of these in turn. So race and ethnicities. Why is this important? Um, well, there's two reasons why this is important. So first of all, um, the rates of breast cancer, for example, are about the same now in African American women and uh, Caucasian women. However, um, the rates of death are higher in African American women. We're trying to understand that we know that African-American women have a higher rate of getting triple negative breast cancer or this very aggressive kind of breast cancer. But again, anybody at any age of any ethnicity, you know, can get these bad cancers. They can be more common in certain populations. And so we want to make sure that that's represented. So if everybody joins, the information we learn will help everybody. Now, another important thing is we are randomizing people to the annual arm or to this personalized arm. And if people don't wanna be randomized, which is be assigned by choice, they can choose. If you feel strongly, I want the personalized arm. I feel strongly that I want the annual arm. It's, it's a pragmatic trial. We don't want to lose people from joining because there's a lot of questions we can ask for that and people have the opportunity to choose. So. In the personalized arm, we not only ask, you know, the standard questions that drive risk, you know, about, you know, how old you were when you started your periods, whether you've had a breast biopsy, whether you've had kids, do you have family history, et cetera. We actually get two other critical pieces of information. There's only one piece of information we get from people's medical record, and that's their mammogram report. We need the breast density. It's been really hard to get that. So we actually have a way that people can get it themselves and upload it for themselves. And again, we're going to get back to literacy and technology in a minute. Um, but the second piece of information we get is information about their genetic makeup. And so why is this important? This is important because, you know, in 19, 
96 and 1997, you know, the genetic sequences for BRCA1 and 2 were down. And we were able to, you know, test people for this. At that time, it was like a brand new test, kind of a big deal. And, you know, really had, had to go through the IRBs. It's been 25 years. There are nine genes associated with significantly increased risk for breast cancer. But we do not routinely test for those. And if you have one of those, when's your biggest risk in your 30s? Turns out that 60% of the people who have mutation carriers, we have like 45,000 women in the, in, the, in, in, in the trial now. Of the people in the personalized arm who have, you know, it, it, the number of people of mutations is not a lot, right? It's one to 2% of the population. But if you have those, when are you at risk? 60% of those people do not have a first degree family relative with breast cancer. Why? Because, you know, you may not have, you may have come from a small family. You may have mostly men in the family. It's, you know, it's an old notion that it's family history driven. The new notion is it's about your genetic makeup. And, you know, COVID may actually really reduce people's knowledge about their families because a lot of people have in families have died, right? So it's, this is, why can't we use the tests that we have? It's actually now because of a number of advances and probably the most important uh, advance is that the Supreme Court ruled that Myriad could not own the patent, could not patent the genome, right? That was a Supreme Court ruling that said, can't do it. Took the patent away from Myriad, opened up the door to next-gen sequencing, bringing the cost of the test from the many thousands of dollars to something that's in the 250 range, the price of a mammogram. So for one price of a mammogram, you can understand not only your risk, not only can we get the genetic testing of these rare mutations, but there's another thing we can get. We can look at the genetic profile, looking at single nucleotide polymorphisms or SNPs. And what are these? These are the small variations in and risk that by themselves don't mean much, but together, many polygenic genes, polygenic risk can actually identify a group of people that are much more at risk, maybe 10 or 15% or much less at risk. And that bell-shaped curve again, helps us understand who's at that really lower risk and who's at that higher risk. So how do we start down the path of making the first improvement but using the platform to continuously learn and improve, isn't that what we should be doing? And it also turns out that the polygenic risk varies based on your ethnicity and race, right? So there's a different set of, uh, there's a different polygenic risk algorithm for if you're Asian, if you're Latina, if you're African-American, and that the Caucasian SNPs which we know the most about because so much research has been done in the European, when of European ancestry, that it's not really that applicable to these other populations. So now we're, we have the capability to do that. And even in the trial today, based on, um, based on people's race or ethnicity, which basically you can also ascertain from the genetic tests, you can give people a much more appropriate risk assessment. So, it's really important to have the diversity of the population 
in the trial so that we can make these kinds of changes. And the United States is unique because we are a melting pot and have so many people and increasingly people of mixed race so that you really wanna be able to use these tools to make that. So this is, a, I think, a really important, uh, you know, this is about personalized medicine coming of age in the screening era. And this, of course, these tools and techniques can be applied across diseases. So that's the diversity of the population. Now you can also look at what about the diversity in terms of who has access to technology? Well, it turns out that, you know, we also want to be looking at populations who are insured and not insured. And, you know, we are partnered with Medi-Cal partners. So to make sure that we're trying to reach out to uh, populations at who have less risk, we're actually having a, uh, hoping to start a partnership um, with DHR, which is a, a group in, 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 in Texas who are at the border town where insurance it might be more of an issue. And we have sort of more diverse population there. But, you know, it's not true that technology is always a barrier based on your education level. A lot of times people have access to smartphones and or, or phones and technology. And we found in some of our work that iPads are like the low literacy option. So we're looking also for people to partner with to that have access to clinics where we can put the iPads and and either in a uh, in a mammal van uh, or in or in centers. That's one of the experiments that we're doing. We're also partnering with the VA and and um, one of the I think important opportunities is that in the VA there's really a much more diverse population there, um, and so that gives us an opportunity to to, to change. And we're constantly trying to think about ways in which we can really address the gaps in care in, in this country and so that we're trying to adjust to it. So all, all of these, we have a, an R01 from the National Cancer Institute to really help us think about these strategies and to improve the way we accrue. But one of the things that we need is we need partnerships with primary care physicians and um, you know obstetricians, gynecologists, and physician leaders everywhere who say, why are we not asking these questions? You know, you have to say why, why, why are we, you know, when I started this, this trial, when I first pitched this, I was I initially pitched it to the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation uh, for Pioneer Pitch Day. And we sort of won this, you know, a bill. So that's really gave us uh, the pilot, uh, the, infra the resources to create the pilot. One of the things I had said, <laughs> This is back in 2014 or 2015. I said, you know, we have to aspire to better. We need to aspire to the iPhone 8. I would like to point out that we are on the iPhone 13, and uh, we we still haven't solved this. Some problem. of us are, doctor. Not 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 all of us. Okay, but but I, I'm just saying that that was that was the iPhone 8 was on the market. I'm just saying the iPhone 13 Understood. was on the market. Understood. We 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 need we 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 need. We need to be demanding that we generate the information to improve the lives of the people we serve. I I wholeheartedly agree with you. Now, participants in the wisdom study are in the study for five years. How yeah. did, how was that time period selected? I mean, why not three or six or eight years? Well, at the time, so the. So the first big grant we had to start this trial was from PCORI, the Patient-Centered Research Outcomes Group. And they really, one of the things they wanted was something that you could answer in five years. And so we had to come up with a framework, you know, that wouldn't be a 20-year or a 10-year study. 
Um, and I applaud them for pushing us to say, how could we answer this question more quickly? And you know, the reason why people are afraid not to do annual screening is they're worried that, you know, that you're gonna find cancers, that you're gonna miss the cancers that kill you. Well, what, what are those? Those are the stage 2B cancers, people whose tumor is spread to the lymph nodes. But I can tell you that is not, you know, if you look to see where screening has missed the mark, you know, I'm, I'm, not, I'm not for or against screening. I am all about trying to figure out how to make it better. And I think that what we need to do is be thoughtful about what we're trying to accomplish. So kind of, so I think about, well, where are the problems with screening? Well, the problem with screening is that we haven't addressed the issue of these stage 2B cancers. And in fact, I run a big trial called the iSpy trial where we specifically focus on women with locally advanced breast cancer or the more aggressive cancers, molecularly high-risk cancers, and where we're trying to change the treatments, figure out how to get people cured so that they don't die of their disease. But what I'm struck by is the majority of these cancers are not screen detected cancers. They are fast growing cancers. So we need to do a better job of identifying who those people are, figuring out what we can do in screen them more frequently and also get to the issue about prevention because that is a place where we're not so good and screening every year hasn't solved the problem because there's still 40,000 women a year dying of breast cancer. We can and we must do better. Another issue for screening is that any test, and any of the audience members knows this, doesn't matter what you're screening for, if you screen the whole population, you are going to identify a reservoir of more indolent disease in the cat, in, you know, that every disease has, you know, varies from low risk to high risk. And of the low risk things, the more you look, you're gonna surface more of those low risk events, prostate cancer pre-diabetes, you know, it doesn't matter what it is. It's a, it, this, this is just so it's not a ding against breast cancer screen. You just have to recognize it so that you can fix it. But we do have tools to be able to say, okay, when is this, you know, when is this overdiagnosis and when is this over treatment? You know, so some of it is, if you really have a low risk, look less frequently in that group. We do that in colon cancer. No one's screaming about it because, you know, we say, oh, well, if you don't have family history, you start at 50 or you screen every 10 years, if you don't have a polyp, we're doing risk-based screening. We do risk-based screening if you happen to have a mutation that predisposes you, you get screened every six months. So these are all notions that we're applying. Question is how do we do this in a systematic way so that we can learn and continue to improve? So by looking to see who, which technique uh, would, would it, was there a difference in the rates of stage 2B cancers that would answer our primary question of safety. And if it's just as safe, there's no reason for us to just rapidly iterate and keep improving our models where you know now we think we can probably explain 70% of breast cancer, but if we keep working on it, maybe we can get to 90%. And you know, we are working, we've just submitted a program project um, grant because I like to, you know, once you've built up a lot of infrastructure, you don't want to tear it down and waste it, right? So you know, now how can we, how can we do better? You know, if it turns out that it's just as safe, it's safe to proceed at the end of these five years, why wouldn't we then say, well, at least for the mutation carriers, we should, why shouldn't we be doing that first genetic test at age 30? 
because then you know who doesn't need to be screened in their 50s and who should be screened probably in their 30s. I mean, so you can, for the small group of people that need more, you can easily adjust that by not overdoing it and the people at the very lowest risk. So I think this is a really important notion in healthcare and medicine, and it's such an exciting area. We wanna take our science, the best of what we know, and not just do it, but put it to the test and study it. And I think this is another really important notion in the wisdom study is to partner with organizations, whether you're a payer, whether you're an employer and you're self-insured, to say these are all within the range of many of the guidances that are out there. Partner with us, do coverage with evidence development. This genetic test has been on the market for 20 years. What, why aren't we using it in novel and important ways and help make the care that people are receiving part of our learning engine? So I, I'm a big fan of coverage with evidence development when you have something that can really drive healthcare value improve the outcomes for people, and also reduce the burden and the cost by using your resources in a better way, more for the people that need it, less for the people that don't. So I invite all the listeners who are interested in participating to join with us and you know, be an ambassador for the study, you know, be an ambassador for this concept. I, I say that we should hold our payer partners accountable for helping us improve care. It should not just be about doing stuff and waiting 10 years for stuff before we disseminate, but say, why can't we be generating the evidence as we go and learning? Unfortunately, some of our fellow Americans are distrustful of medicine and, and, and research at, at the moment. So if you were talking to the ambassadors that you just mentioned, what would you, what, what's the message to help them convince their patients to participate in the wisdom study? Well, I think that we should really be clear. Breast cancer is the most common cancer in women. 40,000 women a year still die of breast cancer. We have made a lot of strides by understanding um, about more about breast cancer. We can take what we've learned and improve the way we offer opportunities for early detection and for prevention. Everybody doesn't need it, but some people probably do. We want to take what we believe are going to be tomorrow's best strategies and bring them to you today. And these are things that you're, you're going to screen. You know, the recommendation is for people to screen anyway. Why not do it in a way that we're doing more for you? And as we learn, those learnings pass on to you. You're gonna to wanna to do it because every woman has friends, has mothers, has daughters, nieces, um, you know, cousins. We, this is something that you can do that is good for yourself and good for your community and good for your family. And unless we work together, we aren't going to solve the problem. And we don't want to be in the same place in 10 years, having the same song that we haven't made the right progress. Um, you know, and I'd say that, you know, you could maybe be distrustful of medicine, but if you look over the last 20 years, um, 
we now have medicines that mean if you have a HER2 positive breast cancer, you're not going to die of it. Highly likely you won't die of it. We have treatments for it. And increasingly those treatments are getting to be less toxic. The same thing for triple negative breast cancer. And we know now from our iSpy trial that it works for African-American and for white women the same. These are amazing things. There are drugs like Levic that have changed the outcome for people with CML. These are the kinds of improvements that, that science and trials and medicine have brought to people. We don't wanna turn our back on that. And we wanna find a way to take those lessons and bring them to every woman who might be at risk. Some people might be at such low risk, they don't have to worry about it. And maybe they're anxious and worried about it. One of the great things is we can set their mind at ease, but maybe we'll find somebody. I mean, I here's two examples of people in the trial. Um, I had someone who came from a family of where everyone died of breast cancer. She herself just couldn't bring herself to get tested, but she was willing to join the trial. And she turned out to be a BRCA1 carrier. And um, she decided to have surgery and she had a tiny little cancer found incidentally. And you know that very well may have saved her life. We had another person who found out she was a carrier, had a tiny little ovarian cancer, probably saved her life. A number of people are able to do strategies that will make a difference. You know, someone I saw just yesterday um, who I'd encouraged to join the trial, she had had multiple biopsies and she'd come to talk to me about having a prophylactic mastectomy. And I ran her risk. I said, you, you just don't have that higher risk. And someone she had already been signed up to have a prophylactic mastectomy. She joined the trial. She's actually at very low risk. And instead of being in tears and wanting to have something she didn't need, she feels very different. These are the tangible things that make a difference. You know, where we're frightening people because she'd had two biopsies and, you know, misunderstood. We, both sides of the story are really important. They're both important. We do too much sometimes, we don't do enough. How do we right size what we are doing? This is the opportunity to make a real tangible difference individually and collectively as women. We should come together and say, we don't accept this rate of death from this cancer. We must come together and find a way to make a change. Dr. Esmer, we're almost out of time, but you are conducting a very important study. And I would like you to tell our audience one more time how they can involve their patients in the wisdom study. Yeah. And, and I just wanted to also say one thing is, you know, we have a lot of patient advocates and a lot of women involved in designing the trial that we have, and, and we have a community leadership board. So we have people who are engaged with helping us reach out to the community who are either in the study or have helped us design the study, you know, because, you know, they have breast cancer, they want to see a change. So anyone can recommend that their patients join the study, wisdomstudy.org. It's a very simple thing. You can do that. Um, if you are interested in uh, being an ambassador, um, I think the um, uh, we we are excited to hear from you, um, Allison. Um, you can actually uh, say who, you know where they can they contact us. You can go to the to the website, I believe, and there's a button you can say you know, I'm I'm interested in getting in more information um, and.
uh, we can send information, we can do a training for anybody. Uh, it's it's actually pretty straightforward. I, I, I believe, you know, especially people who are interested in women's health, this is a really important opportunity to show that we can that we can make a difference and that we can continue to work to not only improve our the way in which we screen based on risk, but that we can really focus on prevention. We have embedded um, we have an embedded set of breast health specialists um, and 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 genetic counselors who, if you have a mutation, we do the counseling and then we help you find the right resources in your community to reach out to. We also uh, have the ability to. Um, we also have the ability to give people. We have a tool called the Breast Health Decisions Tool, where we take people through the things that put them more at risk. We talk to them about lifestyle changes, things they can do to improve their health. You know, uh, there's a series of uh, articles in Time Magazine and a series of videos about the trial that I think are very informative, um, which we also have on the website. But one of the people who was in the trial said told us that every year she had to fill out that health questionnaire and she noticed that every year she was checking off one more health problem. And she said that just made her realize that she needed to get serious about her health. She lost 40 pounds and you know started exercising. So in some ways it's a women's health study, you know, that that there are a lot of uh, secondary benefits that we want people to pay attention to their health. And it's uh, you know, I think it's a great opportunity for physicians to join with us you know, and the larger community and our payer community and our employer community to say, look, come join with us, help us solve this problem. It's something we can all do together. We will let that be the last word. Information on the wisdom study will be posted in the show notes to this episode. Dr. Laura Esserman, thank you so much for your time today. Thank you so much. It's been a pleasure. It's been a pleasure. My thanks to Dr. Laura Esserman for her time and efforts. The Wisdom Study is providing key information in the battle against breast cancer. If you would like more information on the Wisdom Study, go to thewisdomstudy.org. My thanks also to the American Association for Physician Leadership for making this podcast possible. Please join me next time on Sound Practice. We release a new episode every other Wednesday. You've been listening to Sound Practice, the business podcast for physicians and healthcare leaders. Check out the show notes for this episode at soundpracticepodcast.com. If you have any suggestions for future episodes, we'd love to hear them. Email us at info at soundpracticepodcast.com. Subscribe to Sound Practice wherever you listen to podcasts so you can automatically receive our episodes. And please rate us and comment on the podcast in iTunes and Google Play. Sound Practice is presented and produced by the team at American Association for Physician Leadership. We are the world's premier organization for all aspects of physician leadership in every sector of healthcare. Learn more at physicianleaders.org. Robin, Rick Kapow.